Let us open our Bibles in Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 39. And the title of the message is, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Mark 15, 33-39 Listen to the word of our Lord. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And some, and someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Let us pray once again. Father, we are here in a most impressive text and event of history. The cross and the resurrection and ascension are the core of the gospel. Please, I ask, give us attention, holy attention, to this truth, not only this evening, but for the rest of our lives, to remember it, to treasure it, to meditate upon it, and to live it out the implications of our dying Savior. Please be with those who are cold spiritually, be with those who are indifferent to the gospel and awaken them for your glory. And those who do not believe, make them believe. And those who are living the Christian faith, strengthen them even more. So as a church, we may give you glory. And as we see your glory in the face of your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Why did Christ cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did Jesus cry out like that? And tonight, I think the text will give us the answer. First answer is this. Because of you. Why did Jesus cry out like that? Because of you. Verses 33 and 34. It says this in 33. 
And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. You see here Jesus receiving judgment of God. In every part of verses 33 and 34, you see that reality. Darkness at noon, midday was midnight. Everything became dark. Can you imagine that? And it says there was over entire land or entire earth. It doesn't matter if it was the entire land of Israel or the whole globe. The reality is from noon until three o'clock in the afternoon, the lights was turned off in heaven. And that's a language of the Old Testament of judgment. When God was pronouncing judgment upon a nation, all the lights of heaven would be turned off. It was a language of decreation. If in creation you see darkness and then light, in judgment you see the reverse. It is light becoming darkness. So it's a language of judgment, of wrath of God. And also you see here a parallel with the plague in Egypt, the ninth plague. Here you see you have three hours of darkness. There with the Egyptians you have three days. And again you see the same emphasis and the same motif and principle of the judgment of God upon someone or a nation. It's very clear in the text. But in verse 34, you see the climax of the crucifixion of Jesus. It says that at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here you see the judgment of God in the terms and expressions of Psalm 22 of forsakenness of God. Christ experienced here the wrath, the anger, the indignation of God. This does not, does not mean that uh, God was not present at that time. That would negate the doctrine of omnipresence of our Almighty God. It's impossible. Even in hell, God is there, right? It doesn't negate either that there was a separation between the two natures of our Savior, God-man. There was no separation. He continued to be the God-man at this moment. It doesn't mean that uh, the nature, divine nature of Christ was supporting His human nature. Otherwise, He would be destroyed completely. So in what sense then we have this crying out of Jesus, why have you forsaken me? It is a language for us to understand this mysterious reality that's so profound for us. But it's for you and me to understand that God's face was turned from Christ to receive punishment and wrath 
and anger on the nature of Jesus, the human part of Jesus. Jesus as the person, according to his human nature, expressing in the person of Jesus, was receiving the wrath of God. That is why he doesn't cry out, my father, my father. He could, he could have done that. He says, my God, my God. It is his human nature expressing in his person that he is receiving the wrath of God. It's the same language that you find in Lamentation chapter 5 where God turned his face from his people when they were in exile. It is a quotation of Psalm 22 when David was suffering and having affliction and agony in his soul. So let me quote then Job Flavel. What's going on here is this. So upon Christ unanswerable, there was not only an impression of wrath, but also a subtraction and withdrawing of all sensible favor and love. The gracious presence and loving presence of God Almighty could not be sensed, experienced, touchable for Christ. It was the opposite. He was experiencing the expression of the wrath of the God Almighty. But here on the cross, it is so complex that you cannot simplify it in one thing. Because at the same time that our Jesus is suffering according to his human nature, the wrath of God Almighty, it is also at this moment that God loves him. He still loves Jesus on that cross. Both things, love and wrath. You say, how, how do you say that? Because, for example, in John 10, 17 says, My Father loves me because I lay down my life. You see both things. You cannot separate. That is why you see the, the greatness of the cross and the greatness of the wrath. It's because you understand also God's love. Let me put it another way, quoting here Thomas Goodwin. God was never more happy with Jesus than when he was most angry with him. Isn't it profound? It is so deep what's going on here. Let me say that again. God was never more happy with Jesus than when he was most angry with him. But you see here the judgment of God as well here with the cursed tree. Not only curse on a tree, as you see in Deuteronomy 10, 21, 23, a cursed tree, you see the wrath of God upon a sinner. But, oh, but there is even something deeper, greater than this. But it was made, Christ was not even receiving the curse of the covenant. But as Galatians 3.13 says, he was made a curse. He was considered as a curse itself. So all the furious indignations of God was upon him. And let me quote again 
Thomas Gooden, the Puritan. Christ lets God's wrath suck the blood of his soul till it falls off. You see the judgment of God there? But there's more. You see here the agony and the shame. Why did Jesus cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is the word there, why? Didn't Jesus know what was going on? Yes, he knew. You see in Mark 10, 33 and 34, Mark 10, 45, he told his disciples why he had to go to the cross. He knew it. He had the, men, the, the mentality and the mindset and the concept and the knowledge of everything that was going on there. The question of why, my God, was not of lack of knowledge. The cry there, it wasn't an expression of something, of agony of the soul, agonizing of shame in the soul as hell. He was experiencing hell on that cross on that that moment. You see, the emphasis of the evangelists, all the gospel, are not physical suffering because you have on the left a, a guy suffering physically the same way, and on the right as well. What you have here is something inexplicable to the mind of someone that at this moment the God man is suffering the hell from the almighty God and the shame you know why Jesus died the way he died why was not he thrown on the in the lake or in the sea and was dead there or by stone be killed by stones why was it supposed to be a cross because of the agony of shame of the nakedness to be exposed to everyone to see the shame there was a Roman citizen could not even think to go there it was just for barbarians for people treated less than human beings he was treated like a worm, as you read in Psalm 22. He felt that way. He was treated that way. And that's one of the worst pain of all. You know that. One thing is to break a leg or break a, a bone. The other thing is to feel inside the pain of a divorce. Someone forsaking you and abandoning you. As uh, Spurgeon says, the body can get an amount of wounds and then will die. But the soul, they will get infinite wounds and will never die. That's what Jesus was suffering here. That's his affliction. The agony of his soul experiencing hell. But what led Jesus to their cross? That's the question. Why? Well, if you read the Gospel of Mark, sins of various characters in Mark's Gospel led Jesus to the cross. Let me just list some of them. And I want you to think about you as well as you remember this 
narrative. Betrayal, lie, envy, blasphemy, abuse of power, cowardness, denial of death, love of money, oppression, unbelief, pride, moralism, self-justification, self-righteousness. All those things led the Lord to their cross. Mark's gospel teaches that Jesus suffered the pain of the sense of God's forsakenness on the cross because of his people's sins. Mark 10, 45, right? I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. And when it says in the Lord's Supper that his blood was going to be shed for many in chapter 14, verse 24. How can you apply that truth for you now? I'll give you how. I'll tell you how. Why did Jesus cry out like that and receive that judgment that you just heard? Being innocent? It was because of you. It was because of me. It was because of your sins. And because of my sins. Christ cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was because of your sins and my sins they put a crown and thorns on his head and hit his head with it. It was because of your sins that they nailed his hand and his feet on that cross. It was because of your sins and my sins that they thrust a spear into his side and water and blood came out from his heart. And it was because of your sins that made him cry and feeling hell on his soul. In his soul, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Christian, how can you hear that truth and continue in sin? How? Let me read here Spurgeon preaching, Charles Spurgeon preaching on the cross. He says this, All oh, sirs, if I had a dear brother who had been murdered, what would you think of me if I valued the knife which had been crimson with his blood? If I made a friend of the murderer and daily consorted with the assassin who drove the dagger into my brother's heart, surely I too must be an accomplice in the crime. Sin murdered Christ. Will you be a friend to it? Sin pierced the heart of the incarnate God. Can you love it? Oh, that there was an abyss as deep as Christ's misery, that I might at once hurl this dagger of sin into his depths, where it might never be brought to light again. Be gone, sin, for thou hast crucified my Lord, and made him cry, Why hast thou forsaken me? You were saved by sheer grace, because he died for you on your behalf, cleansing all your sins. It was your sins that upon him that he suffered hell for us. 
And for that reason, our only appropriate response is not to live in sin. It's not to cuddle sin. It's not to have pleasure in sin. It's not to seek sin. It's not to fall into sin. But the only appropriate response as Christians, if we understand, if we are listening to the cross, if we are listening to the screams of Christ as if he was the next door, is to hate sin with all our guts. It's to detest sin. It's to be resolute right now on the spot where you are that Monday I will have a resolution to hate sin with all my soul, with all my heart, with all my might. Since Christ went to the cross because of my sins, how can I rationalize my sinful life? If I do such a thing as if it, I say, die again. I don't care. I don't care. I want you to go to the Calvary and die again. No. Tonight is a night of repentance. It's for you tonight to check your life and plead with God, please forgive me and help me to hate sin as I ought to and should. But there's another application to this. You have to rest in the greatest comfort, the greatest comfort imaginable. Jesus was made perfect as a high priest on that cross, you know. He experienced horrendous evil and ultimate terror on that cross. For that reason, he as our high priest on that cross, he knows and sympathizes with your suffering in every way possible. Do you believe that, Christian? Do you rest your hope on that truth when you are going through suffering? Jesus knows and identified with your pain. He's undergone suffering on our behalf and our suffering are shared with him. He did, he did not only suffer for us, but with this truth as our, as our high priest, he suffered with us. He counts our tears in a pocket, in, in a cup. He knows exactly what you're going through. And for you to put flesh in the bones of this sermon, let me give you an example of a, a man who died in 1995, Greg Bunsen. He was a, a great apologist of the Reformed faith. And uh, he la his wife left him to another man. And in one of his sermons, I think he was making reference to that reality and many other sufferings that he was going through. And he says he kept reading the Psalms, reading in desperation, reading through his tears, desperate for God's word in the Psalms. 
to comfort his heart and soul. And he was reading in big golf, you know. He didn't know where he was. And then, and then he went and read this, and read this. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. And my heart is like wax, and is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You laid me in the dust of death. And he said, that's exactly how I feel, Lord. That's how I feel. That's my pain, my grief. That portrays my soul right now. And then he reads verse 16, right? After it that says, they pierced my hands and feet. And then I'm going to quote him. He says this. It was the suffering and the agony of my Jesus Christ, my Savior. At first I felt so ashamed that I've been reading of his griefs as though they were my own. And then a moment later, I was overwhelmed with even more powerful feeling that I recognized that it was. That Psalm 22 is quoted here in Mark 15. What a powerful Savior we have. He, don't, he, he doesn't only save us of our sins, but He saves us through our suffering. Because there's no one like him. There's no one like him. Run after him. Go to him. And love him for this. Why did he cry out? My God, my God, because of you. I don't have much time. Let's not run. I have two more other thoughts. Two more points. Let's go quick. Second, because of God. Because of you, second, because of God. Verses 35 and 38. In 35, uh, they interpret Jesus saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, understanding Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a reference of the just asking for God's mercy and, and rescue. And that's how they interpret it. They, he's quoting Psalm 22 and asking for Elijah. Let's see if Elijah will come to rescue him. Let's see. And then in verse 36, they give wine in a sponge and a reed and put in his mouth. And he stays longer on the cross. So let's see if Elijah will come to, to take him down. They are mocking Jesus. They are making fun of Jesus in his suffering. I think the mockery is mocked here. Because in fact, Jesus is king precisely because he is on the cross, you see? He is serving, giving his life as a ransom for many, in, as we see in chapter 1045. And in the Lord's Supper, he says this that's very interesting for you to see how he mocks the mockery. It says that... Uh, he will drink again from the fruit of the wine in God's kingdom. He says there in chapter 14, 
I'm going to drink it again from the fruit of the vine when I am God's kingdom. But interestingly, before Christ was hung on the cross, he rejected the wine in verse 23 of chapter 15. He didn't receive it. He didn't want it. He rejected it before he went to the cross. But here, remarkably, in verse 36 of chapter 15, on the cross, now he receives it and drinks it as we are confirmed in John chapter 19. He drinks again from the vine. The cross is his enthronement. It is on the cross that Jesus is showing that he is the king. Precisely because he is on the cross to save and to rescue others. And to give his life as a ransom for many. And then in verse 37 and 38, he gave up the spirit with a loud voice. And as we know, the curtain, it's a huge curtain of the temple. is rent into from top to bottom. To the holy of holies. And here you see his kingship, how king he is. Because now, through Jesus, through his work, he's on that cross. He is his throne. His enthronement now because of his work on that cross. You have access to God. Because the curtain was turned into Jesus is the king that opened up the way back to God. You see, that's the truth. Why did he cry out like that? Because of God. He gave us back God to us. Since Adam and Eve in the garden, with their sin, you have, you have cherubims saying, if you come back, Adam, after your sin, you will be killed with my flaming sword. And on that curtain that was torn into, you have cherubims, just like you saw in the garden, with the flaming, flaming sword as well. And now that curtain, with that symbol, was turned into expressing and denoting and signifying to us that you and I have the most important treasure of the world. What is it? God himself. What is the application for this? Amazing love. If in one hand you said you saw the wrath of God in Jesus, now you see in full display his amazing love. What, what love? Christ took our worst, our sins, our filthy sins, our filthy hearts, our filthy minds, our filthy actions, our filthy mouths. He took our filthy sins on that cross and gave us his best, God himself. That's why we see the transaction here, the exchange here on the cross. As we learn with Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Beloved Christian, God is the gospel. For this reason, the best news 
that you can think of. It's not your sins being forgiven. It's not you going to hell merely. It's for you to have your creator back to your life in a relationship that you can love him and treasure him and have delight in him and pleasure in him forevermore as you learn in Psalm 16. And that's what you have here. He cried out that way so that you can have God back in your life. Let me put it another way, quoting here another Puritan, Stephen Sharnock, that I think it, it, it must sink in your heart. It says this, For a while on the cross, for a while on the cross, God showed more goodness to us than he did to Christ. Let me, let me quote this again because this is huge for you to see the amazing love of God. When he was pouring out his wrath on the sun, for a while on that cross, God showed more goodness to us than God did to Christ. To save us. What a gospel. What a love. But there's more application. It's here where you find hope. Yes, hope. What do you mean hope? There is a little book written by Angel Del Banco. That, uh, the title is The Real American Dream, A Meditation on Hope. It's a little book, three chapters. And that guy, Andrew Bunkel, he is a sociologist. He, he's an agnostic. He's, he's not a Christian at all. And he is analyzing culturally America in three phases of America's history. At the beginning, when the Puritans came at the Civil War and the 20th, 20th century, our time, 20th and 21st century. Three chapters. And his analysis is how those group of people in those faces dealt with suffering, with hope. Hope will be the tool, the instrument, and how those people could handle suffering. And for each chapter, the title is the name of the hope. So for the Puritans, when they got here, guess what the, the title of the first chapter? God. And then it says they could handle any suffering because God is eternal. If you base your faith and hope in God who is eternal you will never lose him and you can face anything and then the second chapter is the, the time of the civil war you know what it is or independence I may be wrong here but either way civil war or independence the title is nation he says again they could handle suffering very well because nation doesn't go away very quickly. It lasts. So they could cope with difficulties and problems. And then he comes to our time. And can you, 
Can you guess what is the hope that we use to cope with suffering? Self. Selfie. Self. Now I want you to think about this. Even with all the antibiotics, increase of life expectancy that we have now, more than the centuries before, more comfort, more antibiotics, more technology, more comfort. Everything is more in control in our hands. We have more life expectancy, but there is more depression, more addiction, more anxiety, more suicide. I'm not talking about here, just America. It's everywhere in the Western civilization. You know? You know why is that the case? Because we put our hope and our trust in our self, tiny self, tiny me. And I want to tell you this. I want to tell that, that to myself. It will come a day, or it may be right now, that we will cry out. Not like Jesus, but we will cry out like this. My career, my career, why have you forsaken me? My reputation, my reputation, why have you abandoned me? My family, my family, why are you not here? My ministry, my ministry, where are you? Tonight is for you to wake up and to put all your trust and hope and faith for the one who felt forsakenness, not of created things, but of the creator of the universe so that you and me could be certain that even if life is falling apart as we saw this morning, we will be secure in Christ Jesus forever. No matter what. So why did Jesus cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? First, because of you and me. Second, because of God, so that you and I can have the best person in the universe with us God again he took our worst and gave us his best as our king but then lastly in just one verse because of Christ himself because of himself I'm going to end with this 39 says this and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last he said truly this man was the son of God why did Jesus cry out like that because of you because of God and lastly because of Christ himself You see the confession here of the centurion? It's beautiful literature again. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. 
The Gospel of Mark is amazing. You see, there's correlation between events, turning points in the Gospel of Mark. In Mark 1, 1 says this, is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's the first time that appears the Son of God. And then you have, the, you have the same information in the baptism. When the voice of God in heaven says, This is my son, listen. That this is my son in whom I, have, I am pleased. And then you have again in transfiguration the same information. When Jesus has his face changed. And then another voice from heaven, God the Father says, This is my son, listen to him. And in no other place in Mark's gospel, you see a human being declaring that Jesus is the Son of God. Even Peter in chapter 8 doesn't say that Jesus is the Son of God. You see that in Matthew, but not in Mark. The only human being that declares that truth is at the end. The way Mark begins, he ends now with the cross. Now with the human being giving us a creed. His confession. And what you have here is the most unlikely convert. A centurion? Let me give you his identity. He's a Gentile warrior to lead 80 to 100 Roman soldiers. It took for him 15 to 20 years uh, to get there with war and everything. He had, he had the concept of power over enemies. And for him... For a centurion like that, a cross, the cross was the most humiliating and shameful execution for weak barbarian. That's an unlikely covert. You see, how can someone in his position say such a thing about a dying man, man naked man, shameful man on that cross crying out loud? Like that. And I want you to see now the contrast between the centurion with the mockers. Bear with me and see this truth because I see it's, a, it's, it's, it's such a, a literature, sophisticated literature. It's an art how he does this. You see the contrast between the centurion and the mockers. Okay? See verse 32, how the mockers reacted through Jesus. And pay attention to the language of senses, how they saw, how they heard. Verse 32 says this, Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross, that we may see and believe. You see, they are seeing the cross, but they are not seeing correctly. They have eyes, but they cannot, they cannot see correctly. They are seeing Christ, but they interpret the cross in the way that if he is the Savior, he will come down from it. But that's the opposite. They are not seeing correctly. But you've come down to our text now in verses 35 and 36. You see the same thing with the mockers. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, see the, the senses again? Behold, see, he is calling Elijah. They cannot hear either. He's calling Elijah. There's a malfunction in their, in their ears. 
And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. They cannot see it properly, they cannot hear properly, and they cannot speak properly. You see? Their faces, spiritual malfunctions, they cannot see it. But now, they cannot hear it. They cannot speak it properly. But now, see with the centurion. It's amazing, 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him, now, pay attention, saw him, saw that in this way he breathed his last. What is the way? He cried out. He heard him the way he died. He saw him the way he died. Only Mark you find this. You don't find this anywhere else in the Gospels. And then he speaks appropriately saying, Truly, this man was the son of God. You see the theology is so rich. He says, Truly, this man, 100% man, is 100% son of God. Because for a centurion, the title of son of God was given to whom? You know? To Caesar. A semi-God. And that centurion, seeing a barbarian die on that filthy, shameful cross, he's calling him the son of God. It is not Caesar who is God. It's not Caesar who runs the world. It's not Caesar who has the power. It is these men, weak men, fragile men, suffering men, afflicted men, dying, crying out loud in this cross. This is truly the Son of Man, the Son of God. And here you see the conversions of the nations. And this is the beginning for the application for you to see. It's because of himself that he cried out like that. You see? It is the conversion, the beginning of the conversion of the nations. And it is an allusion as well to Psalm 22. You see the complex? It's not a cry of desperation only, my God, my God. But it's a cry filled with faith and hope by Jesus. Because he knows that through that cross, nations will be saved. Nations will be reached. Nations will be down, bow down their knees and worship him. And you see the beginning with this centurion. In Psalm twenty-two, eighteen is a parallel with Mark 15, 24, with the garment and cast lusts upon his garments. You see Psalm 22, verse 7, with Mark 15, 29, the mockery and the shaking of heads happening again here in Mark 15. And in Psalm 22, 1, the cry of Jesus, my God, my God, you see it here as well. And then in Psalm 22, verse 27, at the end of the psalm, you see the fulfillment of this Psalm 22 with the conversion of the centurion. When it says in chapter 22 of Psalm, verses 27 and 28, when it says this, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before Him. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And He rules over the nations. Do you see the irony behind this? Do you see the truth that the kingship of the Lord is Jesus Christ reigning on the cross? 
and through that cross saving the most unlikely convert, a centurion. It's mind-boggling. It's amazing. There's no one like this. You see power in weakness. You see glory in shame. That's your Jesus. That's your Savior. And I want you to go home because we don't have more time with three thoughts. Three thoughts. Do you have anyone in your family that doesn't believe in Jesus? Don't give up on him or her. Keep on praying. Keep on insisting. Keep on preaching. Keep on proclaiming. Keep on telling the gospel to them. Don't give up. Because if we have a such unlikely convert like the centurion in, in few centuries, the whole, the whole Roman Empire will be Christ's. If God saved you through this gospel, how can he not have the power in weakness to save your loved ones? Second application for you to go home. This is the basis to fight and mortify sin. It's for you to hate sin because the sin that you commit brought Jesus to their cross. But it's love that he was able to search a love, to stay on that cross was pure love. What made Jesus to stay on that cross was not the nails on his feet and on his hands. It was his love for you. That what made him stay there and died. It wasn't the Roman Empire. It wasn't human beings. It was his love for you. And based on that truth, hate for sin, and seeing his love for you is the basis for you to kill sin every day of your life, beginning tomorrow or right now. And third, because we want to sing hymns to him, worship. Worship your Jesus. I'm going to read... A quote from a pastor. His name is James Allen Francis. And I want you to just to, to worship your Jesus. To contemplate his greatness and his weakness. And then go home and adore him for what he did for you and for who he is. Listen. He's talking about Jesus. He says this. Here is a man who was born in an obscure village as the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30 and then for three years was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never owned a home. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. While still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. 
His friends ran away. One of them denied him. Another betrayed him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed upon the cross between two thieves. His executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth while he was dying, and that was his coat. When he was dead, he was taken down and laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Now listen to this. Twenty wide centuries have come and gone, and today he is the center of the human race. I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that, that were ever built, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of men upon the earth as powerfully as this one solitary life has. That's your Jesus. That's your Savior. Don't take for granted. Go home and praise Him and worship Him and adore Him. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Him with all your mind, with all your heart, with all your soul. Because tonight, you have the reminder once again that there is no one like Him. He is unparalleled. Why did He cry out like that? Because of you. Because of God. And because of Himself. He is matchless. Let us pray. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are. Thank you for sympathizing with us in our suffering and pain and affliction like no one else. Thank you for saving us from our own sins, from ourselves, from our selfishness. By dying on that damn cross for us. Saving us from ourselves, from the hell of ourselves. And giving us the most precious treasure of the world. Our God, triune God. Oh Lord, in our daily battle in the week, please do not let us to forget who Jesus is and what he did for us so that we can kill sin. Not to be saved. Not to be redeemed. But because we were redeemed. Because we were saved by sheer grace so that we may show gratitude and thankfulness to the one who is worthy of all glory, of all majesty, of all honor. Praise be to Jesus. In his name, may we pray. Amen.